Welcome to the after party, where we talk about what just happened, what might have happened, why the things that happened happened, and most importantly, most excitingly, answer your questions about our campaign and our game. Wow, guys, this was a roller coaster of an episode. I feel like I say that every time, but I went from almost crying to stress sweating to victorious fist bumps so hard that I actually knocked my knuckles against the wall and they are now bruised. So how are y'all doing? I honestly, like, I'm kind of drained. I know. such a range of emotions that I'm like, yeah, I'm just dead. I'm fairly lit. Ah, undying light, lit. Eric? Oof. No, I feel great. No, I'm just really tired. No, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. (laughs) Great. I almost don't know where to start. The first thing that I wrote down on my notes for the after party was, why is Greg making me cry? I hate that guy. But uh, (laughs) this Greg monologue to me was, that was one of those moments where like I was totally into the role play. It was actually interesting because I was like so immersed in what the character was doing and like the 10 episode payoff of us finally understanding Greg's motives really for the first time. At the same time, though, like him talking about the fact that no one asked us to be here and this is his life. I'm like, oh, my God, we're inventing characters and making them suffer for our own amusement. And like we're playing a game where we just can drop it on people's lives and wreak havoc and then leave. And it was like it was like so meta. Oh, my God. Someone stop me from talking. I'm really I'm really into this. Yeah, but TBH, I'm not that upset if Greg is upset. He's kind of been a dick to us. But that's why even today I wrote specifically Greg equals whiny. And then I added question mark and then or loving husband. And I hate that because I still think he's whiny and I still don't like him. But I guess he's a loving husband. This is a really interesting dichotomy of player and character because I, me as a player, I immediately like, oh, like shit, we we fucked up real bad. I feel really bad for Craig the whole time. As a player or as a character? As a player. I don't think we I don't we think we did up. that at all, no. We didn't do anything wrong. I mean, not to... No, but, like, as someone who is, like, empathetic to that situation, like... I'm I... also empathetic, but, like, he's reacting in a poor and kind of controlling way from an understandable place. I mean, we've only been able to react to his reaction. We've not been given a moment to take what he thinks and then actually think about it until now. Let me rephrase. I don't mean, like, in-game we fucked up. I'm sorry. I'm. I mean, like... As, as a human being to another human being, that makes me feel really bad. And he needs help. He doesn't need a bunch of strong arms, like, punching them in the face and throwing music yeah, boxes out. Yeah, but this is helpful, though. Like, this is, yeah. this is literally day three of their marriage. And if this stuff is going to work for them, like, they have to learn to, like, trust and talk to each other. And yeah, you know all those, like, uh, real-life marriage testers that come around when you get newlywed? What do you mean? <laughs> this is some fantasy stuff. I mean, this come is something, on. no, like, this is something that they are working through. And I think it's really helpful to have have external forces calling Greg on his BS because he is doing behind the scenes like semi-controlling stuff to, yes, protect Alonzo, but also to control him. And I don't know. I, I That doesn't jive with me. But that motivation for me is like... Motivation I get. The behavior I don't. And I think it's helpful for Greg as a person to grow with the fact that someone's calling him on his BS. His motivation, I think, is very solid, like you said. 
But yeah, he can change his attitude. He can change the way he reacts to this. He hasn't, and I don't think he will, and I think he will still be a thorn on our side. I personally have a theory that based on the actions of his sister and him that they are either at least sympathetic or kind of aligned with the Redthroat gang. But that's just, you know, my personal two cents and theory. Yeah, that's not totally coincidental for sure. Yeah. So he can think and feel all he wants about his marriage, but he's doing the wrong thing. We can sympathize with a villain. We can empathize with a villain. Even as we work to undermine them. Exactly. All I'm saying, guys, as a human, as Brandon How dare you defend him? He's evil. As Brandon, here talking, I don't see him as a villain. I see him as a very confused man that I want to help. And helping him does not mean punching him in the face. I see him as an antagonist to our character's objectives. Uh, Either way, Eric, great job creating a character that we've been arguing (laughs) over for six minutes. (laughs) Uh, I also want to say, as like you were giving that monologue... I was having to, like, adjust the volume a little bit because you went really loud. And the whole time I was like, oh, fuck, gain. Oh, my God, no. (laughs) I literally teared up and I had to look away. If we can stick on Greg for a second, was this a reaction to the fact that it's been very clear that the three of us have hated Greg? Was this premeditated or was this more of an improv? I also want to say real fast that as a character, Tracy still hates Greg. Oh, sure, sure, sure. That doesn't change his mind. Yeah, I know. And our patience for it. Right. In an after party, didn't you talk about the fact that it was Greg being overprotective? Oh, yeah, yeah. My motivation for Greg always was that he really cares for Alonzo, and this is really hard. That's always been the thing. And as soon as people have decided that Alonzo was going off to be the champion, I mean, he can do whatever he can to stop that. Also, I want to remember, like, if you look at your all of your characters' actions from the outside, y'all were bandits. You came out of nowhere to save him in a very confusing time for his life. Then you ran off with his husband the next day without him knowing what was going on. So he was upset. Really more and, of a ran after his husband, but okay. okay. I know, for sure. <laughs> but, like, he doesn't know. I mean, Alonzo said it was like a Jasmine sort of biz. Did we show him the world? Shining, shimmering, splendid. Thank you for not just shutting me down. Thank you. I tried a yes and during the after party. Not not during the game. <laughs> not during the game. <laughs> Cries forever. <laughs> and then he gets like walloped in the leg by Tracy. Deserved it. He deserved it. Deserved it. Deserved I think that like undoubtedly deserved it in that moment. All of you can think that <laughs> in your own motivation. Hey, I don't, Brandon doesn't think that. I don't think he deserved that. I'm just saying that everything he did was to keep Alonzo in Fidopolis and... I think if you just have a motivation running through, all these actions can come out. I mean, I didn't change anything to your responses. I didn't think you would hate him as much as it happened, but, you know. Do you take that as, like, a personal affront to yourself? No. How much we hate a character that you made? Not really. I mean, Greg is one of the how many 20 people I've introduced over the course of these two arcs. I mean, you guys want Stoneface around at all times. So, like, it all kind of balances out. And I'm okay with that. I mean, not to speak for Eric, but goddamn, should he be proud and happy of the fact that we hate a character he made? Like, that is ultimately the goal of the DM, is to make characters that we love or absolutely despise forever. And the fact that not only did we hate Greg and now are understanding him... Not to pat a colleague of mine on the back, but is a very... You're, you're allowed to pat your colleagues on the back. The, the, so one of the things I was, was... encouraged. One of the problems I had was during this episode, I'm like, God damn it, am I going to have to compliment Eric during the after party this time? <laughs> There's a lot to compliment about because you got all of us to really care about someone who we just don't want to care about. And I cannot give more heaps of 
compliments on that. For the record, Eric was essentially just shotgunning a beer as Fish was complimenting him, <laughs> looking away. <laughs> Which I think is the appropriate response. Okay, okay, okay. I Uh-oh. see that Brandon and I are the ones who want to talk about feelings at this table, so let's just move on. I said with that high voice, we, clearly Yeah, caring. we made Fish Come go on. up four octaves. <laughs> yep, yep, we hear it. People's motivations don't change. And however people view actions is really up to the things that they care about. In my head, Greg always thought he was doing the right thing. And without really much loss. I mean, so you guys fail the challenge. Like, big deal. Then you guys leave. That's really it. There's not much he would have lost, but he would have gained his husband. And now, I mean, they're going to have to have a long-distance relationship over in a fantasy world, which is complicated enough. Stay tuned to our bonus series, Alternate Universe, where it's just Johnny and Friends spreading the word of the Undying Light. Johnny and Friends. <laughs> Un- unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. No. no. <laughs> and then, like, the items, am I right? Oh, my God. I'm so excited about so the shadow. I also, like, almost got a, a – well, I mean, not, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I did. I did get a tear in my eye when Johnny freaking met the undying light. What? What? So, ah! So Eric and I have talked a lot about the undying light outside of thing, and I really appreciate <laughs> that he has been so – okay and willing with me steamrolling through the religion that he wants to have. I wasn't prepared as a player and it really, I think you heard, it was clear I wasn't prepared for it. Actually, the Undying Light fits really well with the religion. I, If you remember from the Meet the World episode, when the recentering happens, I mean, they kind of pared down the pantheon. But as you kind of learn in D&D, if a celestial plane exists, that doesn't mean the gods go away necessarily. It just means that they're not prayed to by the people on the material plane. And that's cool. So it's like these three, the Trinity is the one that they've kind of like pared down and simplified their religion to. But the undying light and this shadow realm that you've started to learn about can exist regardless. I think it's a wonderful option in any kind of item that has any religious purpose to give the ability to talk or even communicate with the god or the patron as it would be for a warlock. And I'm really happy that I have that ability because so many religious or magical creatures or classes have no relation with where their power come from. But the fact that I have to roll a con save if I'm trying to do something from the lantern or the fact I have to spend time even just trying to focus and communicate with the light. Like there's a role playing aspect to my connection with the light. But now there's a gameplay aspect that kind of reflects Mm -hmm. that, which I think just strengthens the relationship between Johnny and the Undying Light. I love it. There was no question that I was going to ask that first question. I obviously needed to know if Johnny was living the life he needed to for the Undying Light. And I'm really happy that the answer was yes. <laughs> I mean, that really was really important to me. And I was tearing up, which is not something I like to say, but I was tearing up at the fact that I was receiving the a piece of the Undying Light because for better or for worse, I have started to really adopt and really enjoy this character. I, a few years ago, tried to switch towards more positivity because I felt a lot of, in my family and myself, a lot of depression. And this character, for whatever reason, we had talked about previous versions of this group in this game, and it was all negative characters. And the fact that I picked a character that was so positive, 
it's kind of perfect because I believe I'm living a more positive life than I have before. And the character really reflects that. And so I thought it was really important and really good. And who knows how much Eric and his creative consultants realized how important it was to have that undying light be there that as Johnny was had to turn and sob, it's because I had no other words to say because I was tearing up and I had nothing. It was way too emotional. At the end, I told Eric, you had not hyped that enough. I was not ready. And I think any difficulty you were experiencing in the moment was not difficulty of determining what the character would do, but just your fidelity to the character running into, I don't want to sit at this table and be like, I'm not doing anything. You know, like it was, I think whatever difficulty there was, was just kind of game related because it was so clear that none of your role play was labored. Like it all felt like such a logical and heartfelt unfurling of the foundation we've laid already. This is why people should play D and fucking D. Like this is why RPGs in general are so powerful because you get these emotions about characters that you help create that you feel you are even though you're not. And it's just – it's such a it, – mm. You get a safety pass for your emotions if, it's, yes. if they're directed through someone else. Mm-hmm. That's the power. And there are reckonings and there are like dramatic – Foils, And there are like instances in which these beliefs can come to pass, instances in which your lifelong dedication to a cause can finally and for the first time be actually justified and actually get evidence of a thing that you believe for so long. And those opportunities don't happen a lot in life to be like, oh, this is a moment that validates what I've done. Or this is an example that showcases a change in my character. And to me, that's the most exciting thing is that like being forced to make choices or being invited to make these kinds of choices feels so much more intentional than it does in daily life, where at least for me, you know, I'll often look back and only kind of see these changes in retrospect. And so to recognize them happening in one another and to be invited and pushed to make choices that have real stakes, I don't know, it's 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 magical shit, y'all. <laughs> D&D, it's magical shit, y'all. <laughs> it's Get actually- in touch, Wizards, you can have that one for free. <laughs> Eric, did the way that any of us reacted to the items or to the plot in this episode surprise you? Oh, first of all, I'd like to give a shout out to Connor McLaughlin, one of my creative consultants who came up with the Bright Lantern and really built out a lot of its pluses and minuses and what it can do and how it fits into the whole story. I mean, he's so invested into the world that I've created and the fact that he can take something from outside and inject it in and really capture that feeling. So thank you so much, Connor. Oh, fuck you guys. You, you guys. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I feel a lot with the way that speaker Martinson wants to do her biz because I love having ceremonies for all of you. Like I want to be ceremonious in the way that I give you additions and I give you items. So I'm really with her. I love giving you guys those items. I'm really happy that all of you use them so quickly. Brandon, you've already used the long arm of the law in a way that I never thought you could use it. I just always thought it was going to be like Inspector Gadget grab arm. But of course, it's also a grappling hook. So yeah. And Amanda, you like unlocked your inner assassin by using the shadow. Thank God. I love that. Hell yeah. Which Johnny is not happy about. Let's be very we'll, clear. We'll talk about it once we're safe, which we are Ooh. totally not. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, no. And of course, everything that Fish has connected to with the lantern just makes me really happy that I've kind of did a good read on his character and giving him what he wanted. I was really excited for the second half of the episode about the action movie 
role-playing game sequence that we put together. Like, I'm really trying to push you to your creative limits to see what you can do. And yeah, it was a little bit traditional because you guys were attacking when you want to get to attack because I'm actually giving you enemies that it's okay for you to mess with. But there was some really creative stuff happening, and I'm really happy with a lot of your moves, especially when Tracy threw himself down the flight of stairs. That was tight. It was very fun. Tracy had a grand old time. I'm glad you brought Stoneface in, Tracy. Yeah, that was, that was fun, too. I just want to bowl. I just want to go bowling now. I I, I I don't know. Arc three, the bowling arc. <laughs> bowling, the bowling party. party. Bowling there, birthday come party. Come on, y'all. Come on, y'all. Yeah. Stay on brand, Brandon. And in terms of being creative and messing with stuff, Eric, you're talking in part about the way that you structured this fight. It wasn't just like roll initiative, everybody takes turns, and here we go. It was like discrete kind of mini objectives within this bigger objective of protecting mm-hmm. Alonzo, defeating the threat, which I personally loved because it gave us a chance to like regroup in between, also to sync up, which made the actions more badass and cool. So like, where did that come from, and what to you is the advantage of trying it this way? I pulled inspiration from both like action movies and video games. It always feels like the hero gets to go first. And it's like these enemies pop up and you have to defeat them and then you get the first chance to strike and then you can hit them. And I wanted to embody that. Of course, I had to give you some penalties and some damage if you failed, but you actually, you were all pretty successful and leaned into the things that you were good at. I also was surprised with how much death there was. I was thinking you guys were either going to brush past a lot of things to get to Alonzo. I mean, that's what Tracy did. And I think that was a very interesting strategy. You intentionally split the party so that one of you could achieve the goal first. I thought it was like the easy answer is get newly leveled for all the AC, all the health, dude. Shiny robot. Shiny robot man with the new super glove as close to the guy that we're supposed to protect that the ultimate goal is to protect Alonzo, get him to him because, you know, if I fall or if Inara falls, the repercussions can happen, but Alonzo cannot fall. Johnny was already down on health, so it's a waste of time for me to go up there because I wouldn't be enough of a shield for him. And then I will also quickly note that I love that you did the timer thing so much because it's something I love doing myself and it's such a good concept. If you're playing D&D or you want to play D&D or any RPG, put a physical timer to make your players have to make a decision quick because in this case, we were able to find an answer quickly. But in so many, I'd say the majority of cases, that timer is going to make wrong decisions happen and wrong decisions are so much more fun than decisions that you have infinite time to discuss. Yeah, so, this happened in episode four. We would have effed up majorly. Yeah. But I think by this stage, we know what each other are good at. And like to me, it was a no-brainer to send Tracy up because he's the biggest and strongest and the shieldiest. And also someone <laughs> who doesn't want to kill. So that was part of it too. Like if Anara can take her first kill to save Tracy one, she'll do it. I was really hoping to risk it the guy's throat. I'm really upset that that one didn't I mean, I would that have. That role yeah. physically hurt me. The role just didn't work out. Ugh. And I mean, like, I'm sure character-wise, it's good that Inara's first kill wasn't a situation which was like ambiguously necessary like yes he was threatening but would he actually have like stabbed someone if she didn't stab him who knows I don't think Inara down deep in her heart wants to kill if she doesn't have to that's pretty weird being an assassin no I know but I I don't think it's too weird I mean Inara's proven herself to be very sympathetic I see the assassin part as ultimate dedication to a craft that is sometimes necessary Mm. and even though I think she's excited to do badass things and She is excited to put her skills to use when they are necessary and to be the person with those skills. If a kill 
wasn't necessary, I don't think that would sit well with her. Wouldn't maybe keep her up at night for two months at a time, but especially for her first kill, I think it needs to have some kind of gravitas that was lacking in the situation for the character. So the role hurt me too. All right, we have one question for the after party from Twitter. This is JST1138. Hey all, loving the podcast. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but I had a question for the GMs. In your experience, have you dealt with a min-maxer? What does that mean? Even though this question is not for me. What a good question, Amanda. <laughs> so min-maxer is a type of player who dumps all their stat points into the skills that they are going to use all of the time. So if you have a fighter or a barbarian, you dump the majority of your skill points into strength and constitution. So you're really good at the few things that you're really good at, and then you're bad at like everything else. So it's just like stacking your Pokemon team for the next gym that you're beating. Like, I get it. It goes beyond just that. It also means you change all of their move sets specifically changed for that gym. It'd be like having a Machamp who you gave a bunch of protein to, like yeah. all the max protein, and then just gave four focus punches or whatever they were. In D&D terms, let's say you have a barbarian, right? Then you have a half-orc who has a lot of points into strength and to con. And then you keep like the soldier background, which gives you athletic bonuses and everything like that. Everything is dictated to you doing the best in terms of game mechanics. And it's really hard for dungeon masters and game masters because it breaks your puzzles and your encounters all the time. It's like you throw all of these like goblins and then this one guy like has three attacks, destroys everyone in one turn, and then everyone else who has like kind of squishier or more role-playing based characters, they just don't have anything to do. And I guess it would be kind of unfair also if you stacked the challenge specifically against their weaknesses. Like that's no good either. Ah, ah well that's the thing. Oh no. That is in fact what you <laughs> That is how you win the that game. Is how you... I can tell that I'm not a GM because I'm like, ma, that'd be mean. <laughs> the problem with min-maxing is it creates this attitude of you versus the GM or right, the DM. Right. Like you're saying, I'm going to do the best I can to not ruin, but sidestep all the problems by just maxing it out. For instance, Johnny is a half-elf because Johnny is also a warlock and I wanted the extra charisma points. That's min-maxing. But at the same time- oh, wait, I did that too. Is that bad? No, 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 no. No, you're making a decision- that's smart. The point is, if I had kept going, I could have picked a background that was even more into charisma. I could have started with certain items that gave me even more points. Johnny has a lot of things that are like a little min-maxed, but you balance it out with story. And you have to, as a DM, not stoop to their level to point out their weaknesses. You're allowed to have weaknesses. A min-maxer is afraid of playing a character that has weakness. Mm. And I find more interesting that you have weaknesses or self-described weaknesses in min-maxing. We're, we're exaggerating. It's we're, a little bit, yeah. We're exaggerating here because min-maxers is kind of like a dirty word in D&D. We're talking about like that guy sort of people. Right. People who just want to like go off and kill and loot and like do everything by themselves and not necessarily do teamwork stuff. So it's about kind of dealing with people who you like and you want to have like a good group experience. So you want to make it challenging so they don't just rely on one character to bail everybody out of whatever situation. I don't think I've ever had to deal with this as a DM, but the way I actually usually go about people making their characters first time is I don't care about their stats. I don't ever ask about their stats. Um, the first questions I ever ask are like, who you are, what'd you do before this campaign, what's your quirk, 
What's your weakness? I want to know all your character traits. And then if you tell me your stats, I'm like, no, that didn't work. We're going to revise this. Like, that's not how we play that game. (laughs) The emphasis should be on what, like, you guys as a group want to do. If it wants to be a story-based group, you shouldn't worry too much about the numbers. But I've been fortunate that the most min-maxer I had, that person seemed to be super okay with solving puzzles normally. So combat was kind of boring, but... They chose that, and everyone else was kind of okay with it, so we just had boring battles, and instead we tried to focus on more puzzle-type stuff. It's that back and forth between DM and players to try to find a way around this person's decision to kind of go rogue of a group dynamic. And, like, as a new player, I really love starting from the story. That made it really easy for me to get into this and to have an actual character behind all of the numbers I'm seeing on my sheet to go through the exercise of explaining why, you know, my character is really good at stealth, but really poor at athletics. But I also see how it could be fun to break the game. Like it's fun to exploit a rule system to your advantage. It's fun to win. Yeah, it's fun to win. So I see both sides of it. It just puts pressure on Eric to have to deal with the fact that sometimes his players can do cool, cool stuff that may be too cool. And suddenly can sail a sailboat through a storm because we all just roll really well. I also think it's like akin to playing a team sport with one player who is just like a star player and the rest is just like average. I don't think they're going to get that far like in real team sports. I think it's you're better off having a team that's very good as opposed to a average team with one really star player. Oh yeah, for sure. And we're talking about like everyone having fun and kind of coasting and relying on this player. But the thing is when you have a dungeon master who will exploit that is like you're really putting your other characters in a pinch. If you had one really beefy fighter and then you do like one charm spell and their wisdom is an eight and their intelligence is an eight, they're done. And then your party is kind of stranded. So when you really kick the legs out of them, it's about like trying to push everyone to have fun and also everyone to think intelligently. That's actually a really good segue into something very cool we did last week as of the publication of this episode, which was we published something in the website Electric Literature about Dungeons & Dragons as a collaborative storytelling endeavor, where it's more social than writing a novel, and it's less like you're on your own buddy than improv. And we just had a really awesome conversation between all of us for half an hour and then edited that into an article. Good editing, Eric. Good job. Thanks. And it was really, really great. So Join us. Look at this link. We're going to put it in the show notes of this after party. It's also all over our Twitter and Facebook, which are both at Join the Party Pod. You should join us there. Also, Mikey just started doing awesome stuff on our Tumblr, which is jointhepartypod.tumblr.com. How's it been so far? It's been fun. I hope to be a conduit for people who want to ask us questions. And then also one of the things that I love about the D&D community, especially on Tumblr, is that everyone is pointing at each other like, go listen to this, go look at this. Because that's the coolest for me because there's so much love for role-playing games on Tumblr and everyone just puts out amazing work, quotes or drawings. It's Inktober, so everyone's drawing stuff. It's, it's a ton of fun. Awesome. I have personally been really enjoying seeing the stuff that you put on there. So that's jointhepartypod.tumblr.com. Link also in the description. That is pretty much all we have for you this after party. Thank you for joining us. We've reached the end of this arc, and we are all really stoked about the next one. And we will be seeing you in two weeks with the start of our next adventure. Undying Light be with all of you. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.